Hey, everyone. Welcome to the What is Money show. I am thrilled to be sitting down today with Mr. Ovik Roy, who's the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. And he's also the policy editor at Forbes. And Ovik, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Good to be here. Great to have you. You have written this excellent piece that we're going to go through a bit today titled Bitcoin and the U.S. Fiscal Reckoning. And I, th- you know, as we were just saying offline, I think you've done a great job of hitting the tops of a lot of waves that are hopefully getting some of these deeper, more important topics like how the treasury bond market works or Austrian economics into the minds of people, at least getting people asking questions about what's going on or better questions, I guess you could say. So I'll read just a quick excerpt here to get us rolling. You write that, quote, in time, and this is in regard to U.S. policymakers, in time, U.S. policymakers will face a Solomonic choice, either protect Americans from inflation or protect government's ability to engage in deficit spending. It will become impossible to do both. Over time, this compounding problem will escalate the importance of Bitcoin. Uh, unquote. So, I mean, this is really the crux of the issue, right? It's we have an organization in the world, which is the largest organization in the world, the largest corporation, as Elon's recently said, that has this unique ability to produce losses ad infinitum or what you call deficit spending here to just effectively not be accountable to their customers. Uh, if you if you come to understand it that way, it seems pretty obvious that's a problem, right? That's going to create some consequences at some point. Uh, we've been running this experiment for a long time. So like, where are we today? Are we just coming to the day of reckoning after 100 plus years of, um, I guess, government deficit spending being more and more enabled? You know, one of the things that I was trying to get at in the piece and, and, and try to tackle with this piece, there were several different goals I had for it. One was uh, to present to a Washington sort of mainstream policy and political audience why they should take Bitcoin seriously, right? Like everyone's heard about Bitcoin at this point, but in Washington, the typical point of view about Bitcoin as well it's basically a fraud. It's sort of, you know, magic internet money. Um, and it's, but the reason we should take it seriously, if at all, is because it's being used for terrorism and money laundering and tax evasion. Those things we should take seriously. But this whole idea of Bitcoin replacing the dollar, that's, that's a joke. That's laughable, right? So I wanted to, to walk that audience through why Bitcoin is something they should take seriously. And the other, the other goal I had for the piece was to help Bitcoiners understand how Washington sees the world and, and why the revolution, should it come in the way that Bitcoiners believe it will, is going to have a lot of side effects, a lot of toxicity to it, a lot of problems, a lot of disruption for the people who didn't get into Bitcoin early, mm. the people who were left behind holding fiat currency. And so, uh, how do, we, how do we address these fairly hard problems, right? The first, the first hard problem is how do, you, how do you write a piece in a digestible way that explains to uh, the Washington audience why they should care about this stuff? Um, and secondly, 
how to think about the hard criticism of Bitcoin. That typically, you know, if you, if you read the Bitcoin cheerleader press, people say, oh, you know, who cares? This is not a big deal. What matters is, you know, that we're going to change the world, right? All this other stuff is just fun. And on the flip side, in terms of the Washington point of view, um, you know, the question you often hear people say, you know, you 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 introduced uh, the excerpt by saying, look, you know, uh, uh, you know, we've been talking about the deficit for a long time. You know, at some point, it's got to matter. And and the and the response to that you hear in in Washington, and not just in Washington, but especially in Washington, is, well, we've been running deficits for sixty years, and it hasn't hurt us yet. So why should we believe you that deficits are harmful? If you actually look at the evidence of the last six decades, the evidence is that deficits are just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that running running up all this debt is just fine. People people seem to be okay with it. The economy is doing great. Unemployment is at, you know, pre-COVID was at record lows and, and uh, you know, the job market's great. So why should we worry? Uh, you, you, you people who care about the deficit and inflation, and you've been talking about this for, you know, for literally my entire life, you've been wrong this entire time. So why should we take you seriously? Right. So a big part of the piece, in a sense, was to try to walk through for that audience, a skeptical audience, uh, about that monetary case for Bitcoin, why they should, uh, why this time is different, effectively, why um, the deficit and the debt is a real problem. And we've been able to postpone the reckoning. That's why that reckoning is in the title. We postponed the reckoning through some very uh, successful tactics that I go into in the piece, but the, the, the gas is running low in the tank on those tactics and we're soon going to run out. Yeah. Well said. Um, And this definitely a tricky to get that into one piece that you're writing both towards policymakers telling them to take this seriously but also to Bitcoiners in that there is, I heard it put once that uh, even there's stability inside of the tyranny, even, you know? So if you, even if you're exiting a tyranny, which is a good thing, all things considered, there's still going to be some uh, restabilization, right? You're, you're leaving one structure to create another one. Um, and I think Bitcoiners perhaps discount that a little bit. You know, there's a lot of stability provided by the existing state infrastructure. Um, comes with this great cost of, you know, tyrannical money, if you want to call it that, something that's, you know, used um, for ill purposes, let's say. Um, but there's this recency bias that you point to as well. It's like, well, it hasn't done any, you know, hasn't mattered in 60 years. It's never going to matter. Why should I care? So it's like, People, like perhaps in the policymaking position, not considering how these systemic issues take a really long time to play out. You know, especially when we've been able to hide inflation largely through this the past 100 years of um, economic advancement we've made through technology gains and whatnot. So it's like the price deflation that would have been there. We basically the central bank has been able to harvest that by printing new currency. So it's really it's really a screwed up psychological game. Um, yeah, you so, know one of one of the things I mentioned in the piece. Uh, well, I don't make the, I don't spend a lot of time on this argument as I would have liked to because it's actually really important. Which is you know a lot of Bitcoiners are fond of, of quoting Milton Friedman when he says uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. And though I don't state this, you know, flat out in the piece, an argument that I'm effectively making in the piece is that's not exactly true. That inflation defined as the CPI, the consumer price index, is not always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon because actually a lot of things affect consumer prices. Mm -hmm. So yes, if you massively print money and, and, and decrease the purchasing, value, uh, purchasing uh, power of every US dollar unit of, of currency, that can drive inflation. But other things can drive deflation alongside that inflation. World trade. So the fact that we can buy bananas from uh, Mexico and T-shirts from Bangladesh, that drives deflation alongside the consumer price inflation from, uh, from printing money. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have technological advances, right? Uh, uh, that is a deflationary uh, uh, trend. Mm -hmm. Something like cholesterol-lowering drugs, right, which used to cost a lot of money, now basically are cheap commodity prices or generic drugs. That's deflationary. So there are actually a lot of factors in the economy and all the things I've just described are components of the consumer price index. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you're measuring uh, the so-called official measure of, of inflation, uh, which is not just influenced by monetary policy, but also influenced by free trade and particularly the advent of free trade over the last 60 years and particularly the last 40 years, and the technological advances from the IT revolution, which also started around the same time in the 80s, you can see why uh, monetary inflation has effect, uh, been sort of canceled out by the massive advances in global trade and technological innovation mm -hmm. that have come alongside it. Right. And so uh, Milton Friedman was writing, you know, that, 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 uh, coining that phrase at a time when those things weren't true. Right where the, the industrial age that he was writing about was there was still rapid you know advances in trade and innovation in that period, but not nearly at the pace that we've seen in the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a sense, the, the, the Milton Friedman aphorism, which governs Fed policy today, has been part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. The Fed believes Friedman. The Fed says, well, Friedman said that inflation is always and, ever, and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, and therefore, the fact that we're keeping rates so low and printing all this money and we're not seeing CPI inflation must mean that we should push harder on monetary policy. We should have even a more dovish and expansionary monetary policy than we do now. And so that's one of the major intellectual mistakes that the Federal Reserve and, let's say, mainstream economics is making at the moment. Mm -hmm. No, yes. And it, to try and decomplexify this a bit. So, you know, CPI, importantly, is not inflation. I think that's there's a lot of like self-deceit built into this Fed wisdom of how to manage the money, right? Was like, oh well, CPI is not increasing, therefore there's no inflation, which is failing to understand that you can't even have a universal inflation metric. Like it's very it's as the subjective and dependent on the things you want to buy um, as value itself, right? It's it's based on demand. So, you know, the introduction of new currency into the supply is basically artificially harvesting the economic surplus. So we're creating economic surplus through trade and innovation, which would decrease prices for everyone in a hard money world. In theory, right. But in a soft money world or a centrally managed money world, those gains are being centrally harvested, essentially by 
the the currency authority. So, yeah, I it, I get tangled up here because I don't know whether it's they understand the game and it's being purposely played out, and there's a you know a false narrative being put forth to justify it, or if it's self deception. You know, if the Jerome Powells of the world just actually believe what Friedman said fully to the letter, without applying any critical thought. Um, anyways, I, would like I, to get- I think it's I think it's more the latter. I think that they um, that they are convinced that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, and therefore the fact that it is not happening means that the velocity of money is rapidly decreasing. Not that there are these. Um, uh, deflationary trends in technology and trade uh, that are compensating for monetary inflation. I think that's the great intellectual error of the Fed. It's not. It's not the only factor in that. If all of your peers and all of your professional colleagues either are central bankers or people who are senior executives in the financial industry, mm-hmm. right? You're going to be intellectually biased by your social network, right? Towards thinking that what's good for the financial industry uh, must be the rational and sound policy. You've got every uh, bank and every venture capitalist and every hedge fund manager in the country loving the fact that we have low interest rates because that means you know you can do a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do because money is cheap for you and you have a lot of money to borrow against. And um, and so that that bias towards doing what you're doing, because that's what everyone in the financial community who has access to you is telling you to do. And maybe you came out of that community. Not every, you know, not every central banker is a purely sort of government servant type. Mm-hmm. Many of them have worked in the financial community before and after uh, working at the Fed. So that that is a, it, it's, it's, you know, motivated reasoning is a very powerful factor in life. And the motivated reasoning, uh, the pressures for motivated reasoning at the Fed are to, to do what's best for the financial industry. Right. Yes. Yeah. So there's the danger of groupthink. Uh, there's the danger of blindness by incentives. Right. You're incentivized to look at this a certain way. You're right. Everyone in your social sphere benefits from looking at it a certain way. So it, you know, it's funny. And by the way, that that's true. Bitcoiners is Bitcoiners too. Right. We Bitcoiners can can also be incentivized to look at the world in a certain way and maybe turn a blind eye to the challenges ahead, yeah. uh, you know, if, if things keep going the way they're going. And that's, and that's really important for us to also concentrate on because um, the greatest risk to Bitcoin comes from uh, Bitcoiners not being strategic about the disruption to come mm-hmm. from Bitcoin being more successful. That's interesting. I'd like to unpack that a bit with you here. So, before we get into that, though, I want to pivot back to these tactics you described. That the, I guess, for a broad term, we could say the fiat currency complex. It's largely the central bank, but there's also some state apparatus uh, around it. There's even some intellectual apparatus. You know, the Keynesian economists of the world, MMT, all of this intellectual justification for what's going on. It seems like core to those tactics, as you lay on the piece, was this. Uh, to, to call the U.S. Treasury bond a risk-free asset, right? This, this was essentially, I guess, creating an artificial demand for U.S. Treasury or a demand that would not be determined on the free market. And I'll read just one excerpt here. It's kind of a long one, but I think you did a great job 
framing up the history and charting us to where we are today, you wrote in the first month, first six months of 1971, noted the late Nobel laureate Robert Mundell, monetary expansion was more rapid than in any comparable period in a quarter century. That year, foreign central banks and governments held $64 billion worth of claims on the $10 billion of gold still held by the United States. So that's a six to one leverage multiple. <laughs> it wasn't long before the world took notice of the shortage. In a classic bank run scenario, anxious European governments began racing to redeem dollars for American held gold before the Fed ran out. In July 1971, Switzerland withdrew $50 million in bullion from U.S. vaults. In August, France sent a destroyer to escort $191 million of its gold back from the New York Federal Reserve. Britain put in a request for a $3 billion redemption shortly thereafter. Finally, the same month, Nixon secretly gathered a small group of trusted advisors at Camp David to devise a plan to avoid the imminent wipeout of U.S. gold vaults and the subsequent collapse of the international economy. There, they settled on a radical course of action. On the evening of August 15th, a televised address to the nation, Nixon announced his intention to order a 90-day freeze on all prices and wages throughout the country, that is price controls, a 10% tariff on all imported goods, and a suspension, eventually a permanent one, of the right of foreign governments to exchange their dollars for U.S. gold. So, I mean, this is it, right? This is the core lie that we're now all forced to live is that that dollar was a contract to gold, but governments uh, created more contracts than they could justify. That is, you know, we're at a six to one rate, I believe, uh, as you said, 64 billion worth of claims on 10 billion of gold. And this forced the US to implicitly default by severing the, severing the peg of the dollar to gold. Yeah, and and you know one of the things that's really interesting. So there's a, there's a book that uh, recently came out, uh, actually last August around the 50th anniversary of of uh, this event, <clears throat> by the former dean of the Yale School of Management, Jeffrey Gardner, called Three Days at Camp David. It goes through this history in a lot of detail. Really interesting book for monetary history geeks. And uh, a couple uh, points that, to draw from that that's relevant to to the excerpt you just cited. One is that. If you actually, if you were Nixon in that moment, you probably would do the same thing, roughly speaking. I mean, maybe not exactly the same thing, but the point is Nixon at that moment in August of 1971 had very few options mm -hmm. because there, was, there wasn't enough gold left in the U.S. to, to pay off all the, the claims on the gold, right? So what do you do in that situation? You can either just unilaterally devalue the dollar or you could do what he did, which was to shut down the gold window, which led to a market-driven devaluation of the dollar, right? You just, you just don't have a ton of options. You could have just, you could have taken the peg down and started again, but would that peg have helped? You just don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not saying that he did exactly the right thing or even that I'm endorsing his decision. I'm just saying that I think the, if you read the book and you, and you see the, the point at which the U.S. was at at that moment economically, there were very few good options. And most of the options on the table were bad options. So that's point number one. It gave me actually some sympathy for a situation where before reading the book, I thought, you know, that Nixon, what a terrible guy. Hmm. You know, but I think you read the book and you realize, wow, like if you were president in that moment, you, you, you wouldn't have had a lot of great options on the table. That's point number one. Point number two is 
And I don't get to talk about this in the article because, again, just space considerations. But the guy who was actually the biggest advocate for free-floating currency uh, exchanges, uh, for free-floating the currency prices, was Milton Friedman. Mm. And uh, Milton Friedman had been uh, uh, an advisor to George Schultz, who was at that point, um, I believe, the uh, the deputy treasury secretary, if I'm recalling correctly. And so uh, Friedman was one of the guys really influencing the administration in direction of getting off the gold peg altogether and having a, a world of free-floating uh, exchange rates, which Friedman thought would be a more market-oriented solution, you know, without, with some reason, than having just a government uh, dictated, here's the dollars uh, pegged to gold. Mm-hmm. So there was a pro-free market uh, argument for getting rid of the gold peg and moving to a free-floating exchange rate. And as I talk about uh, in the piece, unfortunately, you know, you could make that argument. You could say, well, hey, in this world of free-floating exchange rates that you and I, Robert, have grown up in and spent our entire lives living under it, most Bitcoiners as well, uh, you could argue that that's a market-based system in a way. Mm-hmm. Currency traders can can short this currency and long that currency if they want to, just like they can with crypto. But the flip side is that the one Achilles heel of going to that fiat system in which exchange rates are free-floating is what we have now, this, this gradual buildup of deficit spending and uh, increases in the debt that will eventually habits come up. Yeah, it's funny because it's as if Nixon had painted himself and we're focusing on Nixon here, but it's so easy to look at the individual and forget about all the people underneath them, right? It's he's taking right. advice from economic advisors. There's all this, you know, legion of uh, private interest funneling into him through the lobbying mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. To generalize, Nixon painted us into a corner effectively, right? You had a six to one uh, claims to gold outstanding on actual gold. So it almost becomes an issue of national security at that point. because if, And this is an important perspective, I believe, because it frames up the importance of gold. Gold is still, I call this like geopolitical prime money, right? It is, it is money still. If you go to war with a country and defeat them, you don't want them to pay you in paper. You want them to pay you tribute in gold. So it's like it is still driving um, the configurations of, of geopolitics in, in many ways. So at that point where there's all these claims to gold and people are calling your bluff effectively redeeming the gold, you're going to kind of flex your muscle and say, hey, that's enough. We're going to just hold on to this gold and we'll move to this market-based system. I agree that the free-floating currency is market-based in a way, but the the non-market Achilles heel to it is this restricting access to gold ownership or gold-backed currencies, this kind of concerted effort of countries to move away from the gold standard. And, that's and the government control of supply, right? The fact that the yes. government can print the money, right? So like, that, that's what makes it non-market, as, as again, all Bitcoiners are familiar with. It, the, the, if the, the supply of money is kept constant, then that could that could be a more market-based system. But of course, trusting the government to keep the supply of money constant uh, is impossible because uh, uh, as we all know, and as Satoshi Nakamoto himself uh, said, he observed that that's a trust that the governments have routinely, uh, have always failed. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And that's a great example. And so, yeah, and I, and I don't want to minimize the fact that Nixon, as you said, 
painted us into that corner. He, his politically driven economic decisions were very pro-inflationary and, and helped precipitate uh, the, the, the departure from Bretton Woods in August of 1971. But he and his predecessors all share responsibility for that, as, do, as does the fact that the, the Bretton Woods system itself was doomed to fail because the pegs, the, the relationship between the various currencies of the allies was determined by the states of their economies in 1944. And, you know, uh, that was never going to last, right? West Germany and Japan in particular were booming from 45 to 75, let's say. And so the relationship between the U.S. dollar and the, the, the Deutsche Mark or uh, the, the Western Deutsche Mark and the, the Japanese yen were never going to stay at their 1944 relationship. That was just not possible because of the the massive growth in trade between the U.S., West Germany, and Japan. So all that to say that um, uh, the the, the administrate the government, the U.S. government over that period of time definitely did its share of things to hasten the collapse of the Bretton Woods system. But the Bretton Woods system itself was uh, was inherently unstable. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It- clearly makes sense that you can't apply some static fixed ratio to currencies that are they're dynamic economies right and to your point the the countries that were wiped out were rebuilding more quickly they experienced more economic growth sensibly um it's funny how we get like this is you get comp you may get lost in the complications of this sometimes but it really comes back to this simple reality of less intervention is better we just let the market sort it out you know take a back seat kind of be a little more reactive than proactive, which sounds maybe counterintuitive, but that historically creates the best economic outcomes, right? You just leave people free to their own devices and they sort it out. Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about, if you think about it, the ideal solution would have been something like the U S dollar is pegged to gold at say one thirty fifth of an ounce or whatever you want it to be. But the relationship between the U S dollar and all the other currencies is free floating. In, in, a, in the market, like it had been prior to Bretton Woods. And something like that could have been more stable and could have uh, adjusted to the growth of West Germany and Japan and the rest of the post-war economies in a way that Bretton Woods did not. Yes. Yeah. If you just leave currencies redeemable for the gold that they originally represented, then that creates a balance and in, in balance of payments, frankly, globally. Um, it's crazy, crazy game. Well, I wanted to touch on one thing you said there too, like the idea of giving government the guardianship over inflation is crazy too, because inflation is taxation. Taxation is revenue to the state. So it's like trusting the state to not increase its own revenue. It's it's the fox guarding the chicken coop kind of thing. It just doesn't. Yeah, work. it's 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 even worse, right? Because uh, because uh, you know, and this is one thing that Milton Friedman said that is right. He said uh, inflation is taxation without legislation, mm-hmm. and uh, and and that and that really captures it. Because if you want to raise taxes, as the most recent effort by the Biden administration, Democrats in Congress to raise taxes shows. It's pretty hard to raise taxes, even when Democrats control the entire Congress and theoretically have the votes to do it. They couldn't get it done, at least thus far. We'll see what they can get done between now and the midterm elections uh, in 2022. But um, thus far, they haven't been able to do it. And and that shows how hard it is to raise taxes. Mm. 
But it's pretty easy to raise uh, taxes, quote unquote, through inflation, because you just need the Fed to do it. And the Fed has been doing it. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican appointed uh, Fed uh, board or a Democrat appointed Fed board. Uh, the result is basically the same. So um, in that, uh, the political path of least resistance is to keep doing what we're doing. And I think this is one thing that's also worth hammering home, uh, Robert, because when I talk to a lot of people about the deficit and debt problems, what I, what, what I feel like there's a certain amount of complacency that comes from a notion that people have that's actually you know, an optimistic notion. People have an optimistic notion that, yes, the deficit and debt are problems. We need to solve it. But you know, when the, the, the crap really hits the fan, people, sensible, cooler heads will prevail. People will get together. They'll, they'll solve the problem. They'll do what needs to be done. You, you feel that you hear that sentiment a lot in the business community because in the business community, you know, CEOs of businesses are used to making, you know, pragmatic choices when absolutely forced to do so. Right. Uh, and, and so I think their expectation is, well, you know, if we get to a point where, you know, the, the, the buck stops with us and, and, the, and we can't borrow any money anymore, Congress will figure it out. All the, so the sensible people in, in the Senate will, will get together on both sides and we'll hash out a deal. That's, that is a, a very naive expectation, in, in my view. It's far more likely, if you look at the history of countries where this has happened in the past and is happening today, that we don't actually solve the problem. Because even in a world where the debt is really at a point where we've got to have uh, a contraction in spending or a massive increase in taxes to address the deficit, uh, the political cost for any individual member of Congress to actually do it, let alone the president, is so high mm-hmm. that they're just not going to be incentivized to do it. The path of least resistance politically is for the Fed to keep doing what it's doing mm-hmm. until basically the crisis is already with us, mm-hmm. right? Where we have double digit inflation or worse again. Yeah. And it seems like, again, the devil's in the details of how you measure your own personal inflation coefficient. Many people yeah. appear to be well into that double digit reality. Oh yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it just is a matter of, to your point, political expedience and that there's very little effort to just update that dollar database versus trying to actually increase people's direct tax bill or, you know, these other more explicit mechanisms are resisted. So, so politicians tend to favor the less, the more implicit mechanism. Um, I want to read one more excerpt here. So you describe, we described 1971. There was the, of course, short run, illusory economic boom as a result, as there always is when you inject a bunch of artificial liquidity into the system. Uh, this is the classic, you know, drinking before the hangover kind of scenario like we get high on life and then there's inevitable crash back to reality with a little more pain for every drink that we took so you're right nixon's short-term success was a mirage however after the election the president lifted the wage and price controls and inflation returned with a vengeance by december 1980 the dollar had lost more than half the purchasing power it had back in june 1971 on a consumer price basis in relation to gold the price of the dollar collapsed from 135th to 1,627th of a troy ounce. Though Jimmy Carter is often blamed for the great inflation of the 1970s, the truth, as former National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow has argued, 
is that the president who unleashed double-digit inflation was Richard Nixon. Again, this this illusion, right? That we keep there's all these illusions built into the system where now you can scapegoat the next president for something that happened almost a decade prior, and we're we're left none the wiser, right? And then whatever Jimmy Carter rotates out of office, and we're like, oh, glad we got rid of that guy. No more inflation. But it's not, you know, we're hacking at the leaves, only looking at the leaves, frankly, and never addressing the root problem, which is the legal monopoly on money itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, full credit to Reagan and Volcker. They did raise interest rates a lot uh, and paid, you know, a heavy political price, or Reagan did, at least Republicans did in, in 1982 for that. They lost, uh, you know, they lost seats that, you know, he, his polls were very, very, very down. Uh, but he stuck with it because he he wanted he felt it was his mandate and important to to conquer inflation and and they did, um, you know I, I think really the the mistake the mistakes started to happen in 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 uh, in this century right so you had Reagan you had George H W Bush you had Bill Clinton all of whom while they weren't Austrian economists per se in the sense of going back to the gold standard and what whatnot. The, the, the monetary policies of that period were pretty hawkish by today's standards. Um, you know, you had, uh, you know, the end of the Cold War meant there was reduced defense spending, which led to uh, budget surpluses for a brief period of time. Uh, the, the, the Clinton White House was very concerned about bond vigilantes driving up interest rates through market mechanisms. And so they were very focused on keeping the deficit low so that the, that the treasury bond was seen as a risk-free asset with low interest rates and, and low counterparty risk. So, you know, Republican or Democrat, Reagan or Clinton, I mean, there was this continuity of hawkish, you know, small C conservative monetary policy, uh, much more so than what we saw later on, particularly starting in 2008 with the financial crisis. And basically, this is the period from 2008 to now where things have really gone off the rails in terms of uh, monetary policy specifically. Obviously, on the debt and deficit questions, it's been a a longer run story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we, to get back to that bigger theme I mentioned offline, like everyone's trying to figure out where are we at? Where are we going? There's definitely some rhyming with history where we are today. So if we, I'm going to propose we look at 2020 as kind of our modern 1971 to some extent. Are is that how you would look at it? Are we 10 years out from this 1980s inflation that is a result of the post March 2020 decision making? Or how do you see the next decade or so? I would say uh, I don't know if there's anything in in our lifetimes that comes close to 71 in terms of just how radical of a departure it was from 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 the prior period but if i had to pick a year that was the closest i would say it was the you know the financial crisis 2008 to 2010 mm-hmm. because that was the first time that the federal reserve started directly intervening in longer duration treasury bonds uh, so in the past the federal reserve had managed run manipulated the market for the overnight federal funds rates, that basically the rates at which banks overnight lend to each other. But it had stayed out of 
trying to control or dictate or manipulate, say, the 10-year Treasury bond. That was something that was left up to the market. As, as recently as Bill Clinton's presidency, as I mentioned, you know, they didn't, it didn't occur to them to say, well, the Federal Reserve should just dictate to the rest of us what the interest rate should be. They were worried that the market would drive up the interest rate of the 10-year Treasury bond if they were fiscally irresponsible. Today, that's no longer an issue because the, the government can run whatever deficits it wants and the Fed will buy the Treasury bonds and artificially depress the interest rates to make the economy seem like it's humming along. Mm -hmm. That intervention uh, was first installed during the financial crisis, was first proposed by Ben Bernanke when he was a junior member of the Fed in uh, 2000, uh, but it, it became reality in 0809. And when COVID hit us, we basically did the same thing, but you know, on steroids. Mm -hmm. But the real departure, the real step change in terms of what we were doing really happened in the financial crisis. That was when we first used this tool of the federal government basically in imposing price controls on interest rates across the board. And uh, during the COVID crisis, we basically did that at a much greater scale. Mm -hmm. uh, James Grant, who I don't know if you've ever uh, read Grant's Interest Rate Observer, but it's, it's a terrific and beautifully written uh, financial newsletter that a lot of people on Wall Street uh, who are of a gold or Bitcoin orientation, hard money orientation read. And uh, James, Jim Grant is, is fond of saying that the interest rate, the 10-year the, the uh, treasury bond, or the, 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 the federal, uh, the, the treasury bond interest rates is the most important measure in capitalism. Mm because it's really based on the interest rate of the treasury bond, everything else in the economy is extrapolated effectively from that in terms mm -hmm. of how the economy works. And so when you all of a sudden don't have a real price signal on the 10 year treasury bond, um, a lot of things can go wrong. And, and so um, I, I will say that, you know, so I, um, you know, I personally got involved in Bitcoin in terms of being being an owner of it in, in the mid-2010s. But I, has, I I stayed away from writing about it publicly for a lot of reasons. One was just, you know, privacy. Uh, and, and part of it was, you know, my think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, our mission is to use economic freedom in the service of Americans on the bottom half of the economic ladder, those whose incomes or net worth are below the U.S. median. And... Uh, the, it, at that point in time, there were there were very few policy debates in terms of things the government could do or not do that directly met that test of what what really uh, drives life for for lower income Americans. And after the the most recent run of monetary and fiscal expansion, where we really accelerated our drive over the fiscal cliff, cliff and ballooned the balance sheet of the Fed and, and printed more money than ever before, we really got to a point where this issue of inflation was going to become a serious problem for, for Americans. And, um, and the relationship between the government and Bitcoin and, uh, and crypto versions of the U.S. dollar was going to become uh, an increasingly important problem. And so that's why uh, last year we uh, made the decision to really start to be active in in terms of the policy challenges uh, related to Bitcoin, and that um, the piece that we're talking about today is really meant to be the uh, 
kind of the, the launching pad of that, though I've written about other things related to Bitcoin previously. This is meant to be the core or manifesto of what, what, what we're going to work on. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, that I think is one of the most important things about Bitcoin is that it is economically empowering at the individual scale. It almost it levels the playing field in many ways. Um, and I like what you said about the U.S. 10-year treasury because you know, not only is it reflecting inflation expectations, but it also goes into you know uh, weighted average cost of capital calculations for basically every industry. So exactly. it is probably the most important price in global financial markets. And when that, when that moves away from being determined by supply and demand and toward being determined by policy, that's a problem, right? We're getting super dangerous. We're we're, we're diverging from reality, right? And it's very bad. So. I'll read another excerpt here that I think you really frame up the, the issue faced by the U.S. Treasury market now. You're right. Since the 2008 financial crisis, the Federal Reserve has succeeded in wiping out bond vigilantes using policy a policy called quantitative easing, whereby the Fed manipulates the price of Treasury bonds by buying and selling them on the open market. As a result, Treasury bond yields are determined not by the free market, but by the Fed. Clearly, that's a problem. You go on to write, one such indicator is the decline in the share of treasury bonds owned by outside investors. Between 2010 and 2020, the share of U.S. treasury securities owned by foreign entities fell from 47% to 32%, while the share owned by the Fed more than doubled from 9% to 22%. Put simply, foreign investors have been reducing their purchases of U.S. government debt, thereby forcing the Fed to increase its own bond purchases to make up the difference and prop up prices. I mean, isn't this going to drive, I mean, this drives schisms between countries because now the Fed ends up bankrolling its own national debt effectively. You're, you have foreign investors dumping these bonds due to credit or the con- credit worthiness concerns about the U.S. Um, so this, I mean, the scheme's falling apart. Is that what, is that how you perceive this right now? Is it this thing we've managed yes. to kind of, Keep it on artificial yeah. life support for many decades, but now it seems like something's changed. Yeah, so actually at the, at the version of the article that's at freeop.org, we, we have a chart where we plot this evolution in the share of uh, uh, ownership of treasury bonds by the Fed, by U.S. government entities versus uh, foreign investors. And the trend is pr- pretty dramatic over a 10-year period. To see that level, that degree of change over 10 years is very significant. You think about, you know, over the next 10 years, those two curves could cross and get to a point where the Fed owns more treasury bonds than the rest of the world combined. How crazy is that? Mm-hmm. You know, within 10 years, which is a blink of an eye in the context of human history, uh, we could be there. And, um, and it's not just, it's not merely that the rest of the world is losing confidence in the, the, the uh, full faith and credit of the United States. There are other factors at work as well. So you have countries like Russia and China that don't want to own treasury, uh, treasuries because they don't want to. They don't want the U.S. to have leverage over them geopolitically, right? They want to be like, look, if the U.S. is going to do stupid stuff and, and freeze our assets, we want to basically not have our assets in treasury bonds. We want to be able to have them in in, in things that we control. So that's a factor. Is is countries that see themselves as rivals or competitors or even enemies of the U.S. not wanting to own treasury bonds. Another factor is that 
this is this is something that a lot of people aren't as focused on, but it's, it's very important. The European Union is a sleeping giant in terms of the issuance of sovereign debt. So right now, uh, the U.S. issues treasury bonds, which reflect the debt of the United States. But in the eurozone, there's no the European Central Bank historically has not issued similar kinds of bonds at the eurozone level. It's individual countries. So the German Germany has the Bund, for example. Um, and, and so different countries in, in the European Union issue their own debt. Uh, but during the COVID crisis, for the first time ever, the European Central Bank started issuing euro-denominated bonds uh, against, you know, as liabilities against the European Union, as opposed to for an individual country. Hmm. And one could envision a situation where over time, the ECB does more and more of that kind of work, meaning effectively the Eurozone becomes a competitor to the US as an issuer of government debt at that scale, at the, at, 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 for an economy that is at the same size, if not larger than the US economy, which means that if you're Deutsche Bank and you need to park your money somewhere and you have a, right now you park your money with uh, US treasury bonds because it's the largest uh, kid on the block, there's no country that issues debt at the scale that the U.S. does, and various regulations that I go to in the article sort of prod you to own these treasury bonds. Mm-hmm. But what if there was an alternative at the European Union level that's just as liquid, just as large, just as scalable as a treasury bond? And so the reason why that's important is that if there are more competitors to the U.S. treasury bond for financial institutions and governments to park their money, then demand for U.S. treasuries will decline which means interest rates will go up mm-hmm. and the Fed will be under more pressure to keep doing what it's doing at a more accelerated pace. So all this to say that um, it's not just the debt and deficit that are driving this accelerated problem. There are geopolitical and other financial and economic factors that are compounding the problem. So if you look at it like this, in 20 years time, what will the situation be? No worry about next year. Worry about from a 20-year time horizon, what will life be like for us and our kids? Uh, it's pretty, pretty terrifying. You know, if you look at it from that time frame, because in 20 years, what's the federal debt going to be right? Right? Like at the end of the Bush years, it was, uh, or maybe it was the, I can't remember the exact, maybe it was the end of the, uh, yeah, the end of 2000, the debt was $8 trillion. Now it's $30 trillion, Right. The, the federal debt could easily be $100 trillion uh, within 10 to 20 years. And now there's only $250 trillion in the world in things like hard cash, securities, real estate, gold, et cetera. So there's just, you're going to, you get to a point in terms of the scale of the US debt, leave alone Japan and Europe, where there's just not enough money in the rest of the world to absorb all that debt and buy it. And so, uh, that is the, 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 the trajectory that we're on, and there is no clear escape because, as we've talked about, the politics are reforming in time. At, at my think tank, we, we do a lot of work to try to solve this problem and give politicians solutions that are, that are viable to, to challenge, to, 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 to overcome that challenge of our, of our debt and our deficit. But the base case scenario, if we're looking at it objectively, is we fail to do that. The politicians don't do the right thing. 
And if that continues, the Fed is going to continue to buy the treasury bonds just to keep interest rates down because they don't want a crash of the stock market and real estate and all these other things. The banks will all tell them, oh, gosh, you got to keep real estate prices up because if they don't, then everyone's going to default on their mortgages and we'll have 2008 all over again. And every Federal Reserve governor is going to, is going to have that memory fresh in their minds and they're going to avoid that like the plague. So uh, you put all that together and the cocktail uh, that we are uh, that we are consuming right now is, is dangerous. Indeed. Um, and I think the numbers that I saw were once look, it was looking at 50 some odd countries over the past century. Once they pass 130 percent debt to GDP, like 99 percent of them either had a hyperinflation or a default, right? It's, it becomes un, totally unmanageable at, at a certain threshold. Maybe my numbers are off slightly, but, um, and in that event, if this is happening globally, I, I imagine the countries holding the most gold would and running the lowest deficits or even surpluses would be the most credit worthy. Um, so, the U.S., I guess, is still in this position of holding the most gold, but we're running huge deficits. Uh, I, the actual gold holding is interesting, too, because Fort Knox hasn't been audited in 50 years. Um, I've also heard rumors that I think it's confirmed that China is the number one producer of gold in the world. But I've heard the back of the envelope math that they're also the biggest net buyer. So do you see China making a play for global reserve currency in this transition period, you know, using gold and um, I'm not sure their, their deficit or surplus position, but using the, their economic prowess, let's say, as a leverage point to make the yuan the global reserve currency. So first of all, you know, uh, we should talk about default for a minute because inflation is a form of default. Mm-hmm. Right. If you uh, if you double the number of U.S. dollars in circulation and your debt is denominated in dollars, you've just effectively done a 50 percent default on your debt. You don't call it that, though. We call it expansionary monetary policy, which sounds much more technical and and nice. But that's default. That's like me saying I'm going to only pay you 50 percent of what I owe you. That's default. Right. So the term default, in a sense, and the way it's understood obscures what's really going on. Because if I actually just say to you explicitly, I'm only going to pay you half of what I owe you, we call that default. But if I do it through doubling the number of US dollars in circulation, we don't call it default. Why is it? Mathematically, economically, it's exactly the same thing. And so we are defaulting every year by increasing the supply of US dollars in circulation. And I think that um, we need to be very explicit and clear about that. Inflation is not merely taxation without legislation. It's also a form of default on U.S. Treasury bonds. Um, uh, So to your point about China, China actually is in a worse spot than the U.S. in terms of deficit and debt issues. They're, uh, you know, obviously uh, getting reliable statistics out of the PRC is Mm -hmm. is not easy, but um, the conventional estimate uh, is that the debt to GDP ratio in China is like 200% because they're doing all sorts of things, turbocharging their economy through bubble type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Evergrande um, real estate uh, bankruptcy is an example of that. There's a lot of stuff going on in China that's very unstable. So uh, I, I don't, you know, yes, the, uh, the Chinese economy is growing relative to the rest of the world, the rest of the advanced world. 
but they have their own share of challenges, structural challenges, some of which are this kind of you know, deficit-fueled bubble, some of which are just the corruption of the banking and a real estate system in China. Um, there is the demographic implosion that they're going to have, which is, you know, they had this one child, they had this one child policy. And so you have the situation where, you know, there are all these old people in China, not enough young people to pay the taxes to fund their, uh, their pensions. Uh, and so uh, that is that that demographic asymmetry in China is a huge problem from a fiscal and monetary standpoint. Um, and plus, you, you, you have the fact that they're an authoritarian regime, which is banned Bitcoin and, and crypto mm-hmm. in general, right? So they, they are, um, uh, they are not eager to to move you know move their uh, currency into a different system. So one thing that China has done, and actually U.S. politicians have complained about this, is the renminbi, the yuan, has been pegged basically to the U.S. dollar for most of the last several decades, right? So, uh, or it's it's gently appreciated, very 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 gradually, but. Broadly speaking, the the yuan is pegged to the dollar. And the reason why that's advantageous to China is because it allows Chinese exports to be uh, uh, less expensive, basically. Mm -hmm. Whereas if if the yuan appreciated against the U.S. dollar, then Chinese goods and services would be more expensive to the global economy. Mm -hmm. And because China's economy traditionally has been export driven, they've been very uh, wary to allowing the yuan to appreciate against the dollar. Vice versa, populist US politicians on both in both parties have tried to press China to appreciate the yuan relative to the dollar for exactly the opposite reason, because they want uh, US goods to be more uh, affordable in China and for Chinese goods to be less competitive mm. with US goods. So that that is a big part of the dynamic right now between the two countries in terms of their currencies. And all this to say that uh, China, the yuan is unlikely to be the world's reserve concern currency so long as it's pegged to the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the authorities in, in China will not allow it to rapidly appreciate because the economic instability that will cause will be very significant. Mm. So I don't think that China is in a position to really uh, to challenge the dollar as the world's reserve currency. However, one could imagine a situation where China does allow more foreign investors to buy Chinese sovereign debt. And much like I was talking about before with the European Central Bank, if uh, Chinese government bonds become a competitor to U.S. Treasury bonds, that uh, creates more challenges for the U.S. government to get other people to, to lend it money. And so that could be a problem. But as all this is happening over the next 10 to 20 years, the bigger story will be Bitcoin. Right. If if Bitcoin continues to grow at the historical pace it has grown or anything close to it, then you get to a point in 10 to 20 years where the market cap of all the Bitcoin in the world is competitive with Mm -hmm. uh, government debt of every country. And at that point, if you're a hedge fund or institution, institutional investor, it's not as risky or controversial as it is today to own Bitcoin as part of your portfolio. Right. Every Again, you think about this from a standpoint of a 20-year time horizon. In 2042, the typical 30 to 40-year-old hedge fund manager will have lived his or her entire adult life in a time when Bitcoin was around. Mm -hmm. For them, Bitcoin will be just as ordinary and normal and, frankly, old-fashioned 
as Facebook is today for the kids who say, oh, Facebook is where my grandparents go to mm-hmm. keep tabs on me. It's not where I go to, 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 to post what I'm doing with my life. I go to TikTok or whatever mm-hmm. for that, right? Bitcoin will be sort of the OG in that respect in a way that makes it kind of stodgy mm-hmm. relative to the fanciest. We already see this, right, with the, the, the DeFi stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, all this to say that it will become much more uh, conventional to own Bitcoin as an investor, along with all these other trends are happening. So again, if you look at it from that 10 to 20 year time frame, there is a lot stacked against the US dollar and the US treasury bond. And, and the, the point I would just highlight in all this is that you hear a lot of Bitcoiners and non-Bitcoiners talk about Bitcoin competing with the US dollar as the currency you use to buy your cup of coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. And what I try to argue in the piece, one of the things I argue in the piece is that that's not really an important uh, competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's a really what the mo- more important competition is what is the store of value for the world, not what what the medium of exchange is for the world, but what is the store of value for the world? If the store of value for the world is Bitcoin and not U.S. dollar denominated securities like Treasury bonds. That is the revolution that will completely change the economy as we know it. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yen Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. This is something I'm thinking about a lot lately is like, what is the China strategy in this weird fiat global fiat game we're playing and again it seems like and every a lot of central banks are doing this they're at the same time they're expanding fiat currency supplies are also acquiring more gold which is which makes sense they're trying to um i guess hedge themselves against the fiat currency inflation of others but also own more of this geopolitical prime asset that is gold and in the case of things getting more divisive or, or what have you so, because your piece goes into this, I want to ask this question. Seems like China is leveraging the gold play to some extent. They're producing and buying more gold at the same time, increasing their indebtedness and, and fiat currency supply. They've exiled Bitcoin mining effectively via regulation over the past year. And again, your piece gets into this, but doesn't that make the strategic case from a U.S. perspective for Bitcoin, it's like if Bitcoin is even marginally disruptive to gold, as you know, myself and many others have written and talked about, why wouldn't you take some position on that? I mean, you could almost be one step ahead 
of your prime com- primary competitor in the world, which is China, especially when they've they've sort of shot themselves in the foot over the past year in regards to that strategy. So as you say, Robert, in the piece, I, I make the case that um, that the U.S. should see Bitcoin as a strategic advantage for the U.S. because it's fundamentally incompatible with an authoritarian model like China's, right? China needs to control what its citizens does, do, and um, Bitcoin doesn't allow that, right? Bitcoin is the, the free flow of capital and uh, it's not, it's, it's censorship resistant, right? And, and the whole model of China is, is censorship in, right. in, in every form, right? So that is, that's why China is going the opposite direction. They're developing, they're the world leader in developing a central bank digital currency because it's the most censorable form of money, a money that can be electronically turned on and off at will uh, uh, at a highly granular level, right? So that's, that's the model that they value, which is why central bank digital currencies are a grave threat to economic freedom in China and around the world and should be a very important concern for Bitcoiners in the US. Uh, but, but also that, um, that that is one of the things that makes Bitcoin a, an advantage for the US. So, so one of the things that, you know, I mentioned in the beginning of our, our, our discussion that, that the, the comments you hear from Washington are, well, Bitcoin is never gonna replace the dollar but it is a concern in terms of money laundering, ransomware, terrorism, evading the SWIFT system, our ability to sanction other countries, things like that. The the national security wing of Washington in both parties is very concerned about all those things. And so in in part, I I made sure to to make space for for these points about China to point out to that constituency, that audience, that, hey, actually, I, I totally get your concerns. It is true, and again, we should not sugarcoat this. It is true that Bitcoin allows Iran, say, to evade the U.S. sanctions regime. That's true, um, but that's like saying email allows people to communicate with each other without the government stopping them. I mean, that's just that's the nature of 21st century technology. It exists. It's been invented. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so rather than being nostalgic for a 20th century model of financial uh, power, you have to accept that Bitcoin exists and instead realize that, yes, it means that the U.S. is not going to have the control over the global economy that it has, has had historically, or at least in the last several decades. And the flip side is Bitcoin is a strategic advantage for the U.S. Mm-hmm. All of the Nearly all of the great Bitcoin-based companies are, not all of them, of course, are, but many of them are based in the U.S. or uh, have U.S.-based owners and investors. Um, and, and in fact, that would be more true today if it weren't for the, the degree to which the, the SEC and, and other regulatory bodies in the U.S. have made it hard for Bitcoin-related ventures to, to rise in the U.S. So there's obviously a lot to do to open up the Bitcoin economy in the U.S., but uh, if we do it just like we did with telecommunications and, uh, and other fields in the 1990s, we have enormous capacity to drive this revolution and to be at the forefront of it. And so, and for the, the rewards of a, a, a leaning into Bitcoin to far exceed the cost. And I think the point I try to make in the piece and the point I would make to the Bitcoin community is there are costs, right? I think a lot of us 
at times tend to wave away the cost and say, oh, who cares about the SWIFT system? Who cares if, if Iran can evade U.S. sanctions? That's just, you know, government repression. We shouldn't care about that. Well, you know, if you are concerned about, you know, Iranian terrorism on the, on the world stage or, 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 or their geopolitical uh, malevolence, you are very concerned about that, right? And to just wave that away and say it doesn't matter is not going to fly in Washington, right? The Washington's going to say, no, you're, you're an idiot. So, um, uh, or you're just not concerned about these problems and I'm not going to take mm-hmm. you seriously. It's per- a permission structure to not take you seriously as a commentator. So mm-hmm. it's very important to acknowledge that there are costs, there are trade-offs uh, as we move into this uncensorable money uh, regime. And, uh, but, the, but, the, but, the, but the benefits outweigh the trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. So it's as if the permission, permissioned or control hierarchies that we are accustomed to, like the SWIFT system and many others under um, U.S. control, they're kind of running into this permissionless control system that is Bitcoin. And it seems to me like the view was how do we, you know, again, how does this permissioned structure, top-down structure somehow assimilate this permissionless one and control it to its own interest? But once you understand Bitcoin, it's like, that's quite impossible. It's actually the reverse that you have to adapt to this reality of permissionless money, right? It's not like, it's, it's one thing to say, well, it's really bad that Iran can circumvent U.S. sanctions, Okay, maybe that's so, depending on your your value judgment or perspective. But it is an, it is a reality, right? It's like this tool now exists. No one knows how to shut it down. It's like it's as if you know gravity were changed a few degrees or something. So you just have to adapt to this new reality. Um, I don't. It doesn't seem to me like policymakers, as you as you get to in the piece, they haven't taken that seriously yet. And I guess this is just a virtue of of Bitcoin's newness or the fact that it's you know, only a trillion dollars. Um, is that how you see it? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things, right? So it, it's definitely that it's a novelty. And, you know, most people who are very at the peak of their careers in government are in their 60s and 70s and 80s, right? These are people who uh, it's just hard at that age, no matter what era you live in, to, to believe that there's some new technology that's going to disrupt the way in which the world has worked for your entire life. So it's just inherently, it's human nature to, to be skeptical of, of new technologies or new ways of doing things compared to the way you've always lived and the way you've seen the world work for your entire life. So I think that's a big part of it. And um, I think another part of it is that, um, you know, it's not just really, in our, you know, the entire lives of the people who are running the government today. I mean, the U.S. dollar has been preeminent for a pretty long time, right? You know, certainly since World War II, but arguably since World War One, when and you know you had the hyperinflation in Germany, but not just in Germany. I mean, you had the massive monetary crises between World War One and World War II in Western Europe. So uh, it's really uh, arguably since World War One, certainly the collapse of the, the pound sterling in in the early part of the 20th century, the U.S. dollar has been preeminent. So it's been a very very long time. And so when something has been true for a century, say, it's very hard to to imagine that the world could be any different. And that goes for not just the supremacy of the dollar, it goes for the supremacy of the United States, it goes for uh, a lot of different factors. And it takes time for for these new realities to emerge. Um, And 
And, and, and so the question really is, is the U.S. going to do uh, the things to be uh, to be at the forefront of that of that new world? And, and my hope and I, I think it is within um, our, our grasp to, to achieve this. My hope is that the government doesn't intervene enough to prevent Bitcoin and Bitcoin related ventures from being a big part of the U.S. economy. And so the optimistic case for Bitcoin in the U.S. is that uh, as Bitcoin-related ventures become a more important part of the U.S. economy, it will become politically impossible to shut down Bitcoin in the U.S. because there will be a large and vocal constituency, as there already is, but even more so, Mm -hmm. a large and vocal and economically powerful constituency calling their congressmen and their senators and their presidents saying, hey, you know, this is a big part of my uh, retirement portfolio. This, these, these stocks, these mining stocks and Coinbase and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, don't shut that down. There are huge jobs in my district that are that are being people are being employed by this industry. I uh, don't, don't don't kill those jobs. So once that once you start to get to that level of entrenchment, mm-hmm. I think it'll be hard to, to 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 massively disrupt Bitcoin. But we're not there yet. So I think the, the moment we're in now between, say, the next zero to 10 years is a fragile time for Bitcoin in the U.S. in which the forces that say, as some in the Biden administration wanted to, that we should just tax all cryptocurrency gains at 80 percent, effectively driving the investment value out of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Um, and it would, right? Like if, if you had something like that happen, effectively, no, most institutional investors, most big investors would say, you know what, if I'm going to be taxed at 80% of my gains for owning Bitcoin, then it's not really worth it to own Bitcoin, right? And then they'll own something else. So um, there are things, you know, again, yes, Bitcoin, the network is uncensorable by the US, but Bitcoin as an investment, Bitcoin in terms of its adoption curve is definitely within the grasp of the U.S. government to affect. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important for advocates of Bitcoin to be preparing for that today. And, and some are, uh, and, but more need to. People need to be much more aware and much less complacent about the potential of the U.S. government to damage and disrupt the adoption of Bitcoin in the U.S. and around the world. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the decentralized governance structure of the U.S. actually comes into play so much here. Where you talk about Bitcoin becoming entrenched into uh, the economic fabric of the business community of the U.S. in a way that uh, should Bitcoin be threatened by regulation, those constituents speak out, right? And that that voice is what the reason I find that interesting is because it. I've identified Bitcoin as a technology getting us back to the foundational principles of the U.S., which was this decentralized governance model of checks and balances and um, centered on life, liberty and property, you know. Um, and I think you do a great job in the piece. Again, we you cut through a lot of uh, big concepts. So we kind of touched on the U.S. Treasury market. Then you go into the Austrian School of Economics, which I've argued, and this is through Bitcoin, my own studies, that it appears to be the number one blind spot for most modern intellectuals. Like they understand a lot about a lot of things, but very, this is a very um, niche topic, let's say, Austrian economics. So I'll read one more excerpt here. You write, 
In the theory of money and credit first published in 1912, Mises argued that sound money serves as an instrument for the protection of civil liberties against despotic inroads on the parts of government that belongs in the same class with political constitutions and bills of rights. Just as bills of rights were a reaction against arbitrary rule and the non-observance of old customs by kings, he wrote, the postulate of sound money was first brought up as a response to the princely practice of debasing the coinage. So to make it very simple for people, it's like sound money is just honoring contract law, really, right? It's like people have the right to convert their money to whatever it was supposed to be. Uh, but through government intervention and legal monopoly enforcement, we've we've basically broken contract and money. And so in doing so, we get away from the foundational principles that are the U.S., that founded the U.S., and yet Bitcoin kind of takes us back towards that direction should it continue to succeed. So I don't know, this, this kind of perhaps naive optimism I have as a Bitcoiner is that someone will deliver that message with sufficient eloquence to Washington. It's like, guys, we've been running this country for 200 plus years. It started on these principles. We have diverged from them. Here's a technology that takes us back to them. Our enemy, China, one of our enemies has completely dropped the ball on this. This is a huge strategic advantage. It's a no brainer almost when you understand it from these um, multiple angles. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you uh, uh, read that excerpt because first of all, it's just uh, Mises really captures uh, so much of, of what, what Bitcoin is about. Uh, but, but, the, but the reason I, I I included that discussion of Austrian economics was twofold. One, because to a Washington audience that thinks of Bitcoin as newfangled, I'm, I'm basically trying to make the case in that section of the article that actually the ideas behind Bitcoin are very old uh, and in fact, very much a part of the uh, economic freedom, the intellectual tradition of economic freedom in the United States and in the West. Um, which is not something that I think a lot of people in policymaking circles and think tanks uh, understand, that really uh, Bitcoin is the embodiment of Austrian economic thinking. I mean, it's, it's obviously well understood by your listeners, uh, but not necessarily by, uh, by, uh, by people in, who, are, who are otherwise reasonably fluent in, in Austrian economics, or at least certainly like to quote Hayek. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, and Mises to a lesser degree, and say, "Hey, I, you know, I'm a follower of Hayek. I'm a follower of, you know, the, the, there are plenty of uh, buildings in in Washington named after Hayek in in, in, in certain parts of the uh, parts of the city. So um, there are um, uh, so 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 to to uh, highlight for a Bitcoin skeptical audience how much of the intellectual tradition of free market economics uh, is reflected in Bitcoin. That was part of the idea there." And also on the flip side, um, you know, it's actually kind of amazing to me how little Austrian economics gets discussed in Bitcoin journalism, mm -hmm. right? You hear a lot of people talk about the, the white paper, mm -hmm. um, which obviously is, is, is great, never interested to read it. But the white paper, in terms of its economic philosophy, is really drawing on this much longer tradition that's very rich and contains a lot of... Uh, thinking that Bitcoiners would benefit from uh, from uh, reading and encountering because it would it would uh, deepen their um, their uh, 
their understanding of, of, of Bitcoin and, and its and its basic economic concepts. So, so I'm in a sense also trying to you know, express to the Bitcoin community, hey guys, you know, there's this, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto was not the first person to come up with the idea of sound money. This is idea has been around a long time. And people have been thinking a lot about the risks and dangers of unsound money for a long time as well. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, Austrian economics, you could perhaps say libertarianism more broadly, it's been contemplating this non-interventionist or post-state economic model for hundreds of years. There's been a lot of great thinking and great writing about it. Um, It also invokes a different type of of knowledge or epistemology that is not empirical, right? It's deductive from, from certain axioms is deducing these realities like, you know, the Austrian business cycle theory and whatnot. Um, as important as that is to just understand the significance of Bitcoin, where I'm at currently is like, I'm also looking at what the world looks like post Bitcoin, uh, you know, with the thing like contemplating the privatization of of security or things like this like with the, to your earlier point when the state's not there anymore there's certain services that were provided and i'm not I should say when the state is less there the, the separation of money and state results in smaller government is kind of the the theory behind the monetization of bitcoin as government shrinks certain services that it has traditionally provided would likely be provided by the private sector so i just wanted to reinforce your point that it's a very deep rabbit hole. There's a lot of lessons to be gleaned from this study of, of relatively old literature that I think is very applicable in, to the world we're going into. Um, and just to highlight one, I'll read one more tiny excerpt here because I thought this did a, such a good job of drawing the comparison between the importance of gold and Bitcoin. And you just said very simply that gold's primary virtue is that its supply increases slowly and steadily and cannot be manipulated by politicians. Like that's it. You just want predictable store of value, right? I want to own a fraction of a total supply of money that I know has a very low probability of being debased or manipulated by others. And that's, that's right. gold, gold approximated and Bitcoin perfects. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and I think what, what's important, I would highlight in that and what you just said, the word predictable mm-hmm. is you hear a lot of people, for example, uh, you know, Vitalik uh, Buterin has said, well, you know, if, if Bitcoin is sound money, well, Ether is ultrasound money because its supply is going to decrease over time. And yes, supply is a factor and a consideration, but it's the predictability of the supply that's most important because for something to be a long-term store of value, you want to have a fair amount of certainty or confidence in what the supply will be 10, 20, 50 years from now. And that's where Bitcoin with its fixed supply is uh, very attractive to investors and savers because you know what the supply will be. And that's very important for planning, right? If you're trying to plan for, okay, how am I going to organize my life over the next 40 years so I can retire? an unpredictably shrinking supply is, I guess, okay, but the very nature of unpredictable means, well, it could go down. Maybe there's some new software upgrade and it goes up again. I don't know. But with Bitcoin, it's fixed. That's in the code and the code isn't going to change in that way, uh, at least not feasibly, right? So that's that predictability is, is important for Bitcoin and for gold. The fact that while you can't completely predict 
growth and supply of gold, it has uh, been pretty steady and stable in terms of the growth of supply over time. And understandably, for many of the same uh, economic principles that apply to Bitcoin mining, there's kind of an equilibrium of the cost of extracting it from the ground relative to the spot price of, of gold are kind of an equilibrium. Similarly, um, the price of mining uh, Bitcoin relative to its spot price. So those are, are, are relatively predictable factors that you can model as an investor uh, in ways that are very, very important to uh, Bitcoin as a store of value. And one other point, by the way, harking back to our earlier discussion of the Austrians, one of the, the points that uh, Friedrich Hayek makes in the denationalization of money, which is a great uh, little monograph on, on, on this topic that I encourage everyone to read if they haven't. He makes this point that um, moneyness is not a unit. It's not a binary thing. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, the, the textbook definition of money that, that, that you, you encounter in Econ 101, where, okay, in order to be money, it must be, one, a store of value, two, a medium exchange, three, a unit of account. And if it's not all three of those things at once, it's not money. And, and so you hear some people say, well, Bitcoin's not really money mm -hmm. because, well, maybe it's a store of value, who knows, but it's volatile. It's not a medium exchange because nobody's using it to buy their coffee except in El Salvador. And it's not a unit of account even in El Salvador. So like, it's not real money, right? That's the argument you hear people say or people make. And what Hayek points out is that different types of money are, uh, are at different points in the spectrum of those three characteristics. So for example, the US dollar, yes, it's widely used as a unit of account, widely used as a medium exchange, not such a great store of value. Right, so it's U.S. dollar not money because it's not a good story of value. I think most of us would agree that it's money. It just happens to be better at two out of the three things. Right, Bitcoin, great store of value, not widely used as a unit of account. So some seldom used as a medium of exchange. Also, a very important form of money. Right. So uh, one of the insights in of Hayek's is that um, that uh, this textbook definition of money is somewhat ad hoc and artificial and and retroactive. And, and, and the real test of money is how it's used across those three dimensions. And certain types of money may be more useful for some versus others. And the store of value component is the most important. Yeah, it's an excellent point that I believe I got that from Hayek as well, that moneyness exists on this gradient. And everything has, anything that trades typically has some monetary premium, right? The, whatever demand is holding that asset not to use it or consume it, but to actually trade it in the future. That's kind of the monetary premium associated associated with each asset. It just so happens that that monetary premium tends to accrete to one asset disproportionately so, like as was the case with gold. Um, and the functions too are interesting because we, do, you know, in the textbook, it's like it needs to be these three things, but the history shows that it evolves, right? It's initially a store of value, then a medium of exchange, and finally a unit of account. So it's it's kind of a static depiction of a dynamic reality. Um, and again, That's just right. speaks to that blind spot. You know, there's this real Keynesian blind spot. When I hear Dalio talk about money, he just recites the three things straight out of the textbook, and that's it. He doesn't doesn't push his thinking beneath that. And that's true of a lot of people, right? Like anyone who's taken Econ 101 and has heard that textbook definition, it's sort of, 
enables the suspension of thought about Bitcoin. You don't have to think any more about it. Um, and and uh, again, Austrians are, are, are uh, and Hayek in particular, have done a great job of articulating why that's not the case. And again, it's it's not merely like the Keynesian progressive lefty types who make this point or make this textbook definition argument. It's also mainstream economists on the right that, that do it. So um, I, I think that's where Austrianism is 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 distinct and, and interesting and and uh, more accurate, right? Because again, if, if if by the textbook definition, the U.S. dollar isn't money either because it's failing the test of being a good store of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. So I'll try, I'm going to read another excerpt here, and this gets back into the strategic implications for the U.S. You write, over the next 10 to 20 years, as Bitcoin's liquidity increases and the United States becomes less creditworthy, financial institutions and foreign governments alike may replace an increasing portion of their treasury bond holdings with Bitcoin and other forms of sound money. With asset values reaching bubble proportions and no end to federal spending in sight, it's critical for the United States to begin planning for this possibility now. And you go on to write, just as Nixon's 1971 closure of the gold window led to a rapid flight from the dollar, imposing restrictions on the exchange of Bitcoin for dollars would confirm to the world that the United States no longer believes in the competitiveness of its currency accelerating the flight from treasury bonds and undermining America's ability to borrow. I think that nicely captured kind of the self-defeating nature of um, bans. And I guess, I guess you could apply this too to censorship, which is interesting. Like I don't, this is a bit off topic, but this recent podcast with Joe Rogan and I think it's Dr. Robert Malone. Um, anyways, I haven't watched it myself yet, but, I've seen a lot of people speaking out in the social sphere saying that the only reason they watched this, apparently this episode was banned by YouTube or Twitter or whatever, censored. The only reason they watched the episode is because it was censored. So right. I'm, like, I'm thinking back on, there's this whole history of banned books, you know, states of banned books across history, but they end up being- Martin works the same way, right? You assassinate someone, they become a martyr. Yeah, exactly. So this whole idea of censorship or regulation or control, it just seems like it's decreasingly effective in the digital world where it just kind of, you try to stamp out one version of it and people that, that indicates to people that it's important for whatever reason, and then copies pop up elsewhere and people go and watch them. So um, I think you did a great job just applying that type of thinking to Bitcoin's um, should Bitcoin be targeted by a regulatory attack, the likely result? Yeah, I mean, and I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see. This is this is sort of the arms race or uh, or boat race, I should say, now, that we're watching now is, can Bitcoin and the Bitcoin economy become sufficiently entrenched in the U.S. where a ban becomes unfeasible or so damaging the U.S. is reluctant to take that step versus like today... Yes, you know, uh, you know, investors in Coinbase would get harmed, and investors in mining stocks would get harmed, uh, and people who own Bitcoin would obviously be be inconvenienced. But um, the the cost to the to the U- U.S. economy today for you know quote unquote banning Bitcoin, by which we really mean banning Americans from using Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin itself would not be banned, but Americans would find it very hard to use. 
Um, that is more, it's, it's, it's at least, it, could, it would be more harmful it ha- if it happens earlier rather than it happens after Bitcoin is more entrenched than it is today. And I think one of the things that's encouraging in that regard is uh, Bitcoiners, obviously everyone likes to make money, but what I really admire about the Bitcoin community as a whole is that is that mission-driven element of so much of it. Right. There's so many people who could be doing more lucrative things with their lives, but are actually spending money to invest in making sure that Bitcoin is as successful as possible. Um, you think about a guy like Jack Dorsey, who obviously, you know, some people don't like him because of Twitter and whatnot. But here's a guy who's basically saying, you know what, I want to dedicate my life to, to Bitcoin. Uh, and he doesn't have to. Right. He's doing it because he believes that it's better for the world, that Bitcoin is as robust as possible. Um, and there are lots of people like that in the Bitcoin community. And I think that that is um, not only is it just impressive to observe, but it's also the uh, uh, a characteristic of every successful social movement. Mm-hmm. Right? Every successful social movement ultimately wins because its adherents care more about the cause than they do about themselves and their own personal profit. Obviously, with Bitcoin, you can do both, which is nice uh, to a large degree. But, but you know, that that willingness to to make sacrifices, to work extra hard because you believe in in the social value of what you're doing, is uh, so important. And and I think my optimism about Bitcoin's success as being entrenched as a global store of value comes in large part from those, el- those those sociological elements of the Bitcoin community, the fact that that uh, so many of us are willing to, to, to invest our time and resources into making Bitcoin successful. Because the Janet Yellens of the world, they're going to you know, make pronouncements about how much they're skeptical of Bitcoin and how much they want the US dollar to succeed, but they're not going to fix the deficit and the debt. They're not going to roll back the Treasury's balance sheet. They're not going to do the hard things that you have to do to ensure that the dollar competes and the treasury bond competes with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between Bitcoin and the treasury bond is that the people fighting for the success of Bitcoin are more determined than the people who are fighting for the success of the treasury bond. The treasury bond uh, uh, advocates have certainly more political and military power today. um, uh, But, uh, but that, but that, uh, but that moral, power is is important as well yeah that's an excellent point um i'm reminded of that i think it's eleanor roosevelt said never doubt the ability of a small committed group to change the world margaret mead yeah margaret mead indeed is the only thing that ever has yeah um i'm also reminded of a little bit of tennessee wisdom i heard it put once that it's not the size of the dog in the fight but it's the size of the fight and the dog Mm. and um yeah a lot of Bitcoiners really have, I mean, we all have skin in the game, clearly can't avoid that, but it does go to almost soul in the game where people are sticking their necks out there a little bit, you know, as you mentioned, Jack Dorsey, taking certain types of risk to really make sure Bitcoin is as successful as possible. That's hard to compete with, man. I mean, how do you, you've got a super committed group of people that are willing to take risk, you know, over and above um, what is maybe considered rational or reasonable, that's really hard to compete with. 
Yeah, I mean, think about the core developers, you know, some of them are obviously now supported by philanthropists and whatnot, but a lot of them are not. A lot of them are just doing it because they believe in it. And even the ones who are supported, that's basically a write-off, right? That's a charitable contribution to the success of the ecosystem. I guess you could say for Bitcoin-oriented businesses, they're they're operating in their own uh, self-interest to a degree, but it's a pretty indirect self-interest, right? So uh, uh, that I think a lot of people who are not involved uh, knee-deep in, in Bitcoin don't appreciate how much is going on behind the scenes every day as people work to make Bitcoin even more robust and more secure and more useful. Uh, and that's, um, uh, again, it's a, it's a super impressive thing that that is part of what, what was, is going to make Bitcoin successful. And I, I think that, again, the question that I come back to in terms of the U.S. context is, are Americans going to benefit more than they are hurt by the changes to come? Mm. Because, you know, as the U.S. dollar and the Treasury bond weaken and our ability to borrow money ad infinitum weakens, uh, those Americans who don't own Bitcoin and are late to the game are going to be are going to be in harm's way, right? Because the value of their savings to the degree they have them are going to decline. And if they don't have savings, they're even more at risk because buying things in dollars, if their wages come in dollars or their government subsidies come in dollars, are going to have less purchasing power. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a pretty large constituency of people, potentially 100 million or more, or maybe even 200 million, who say, you know what? Inflation is rampant. Um, you know, uh, we've got to stop it no matter what, and, and we've got to do something about it. And many, maybe those, uh, those people take their, uh, their, uh, their uh, concerns out on Bitcoin, but that could very well happen, right? And so that is a risk that the Bitcoin community needs to be humble about and concerned about, which obviously a lot of, you know, that's why people like you do what you do, right? You're, you're, you're trying to spread the word and get more people uh, to, to be aware of the importance of Bitcoin. And, and that's obviously super important. But even if uh, guys like you and, and, and all the others who are involved in this community are successful spreading the word to a degree, there's still going to be people who, who just don't do it, right? Mm-hmm. Who don't, who do it, who get left behind. Um, and and even if they do buy a little Bitcoin, maybe it's just not enough, right? Like if you're making thirty, forty thousand dollars a year and you're living paycheck to paycheck, even if you are trying to save ten bucks or twenty bucks out of your paycheck to put into Bitcoin, that's not enough to pay for the inflation that has already come your way and is going to be coming your way in the future. So even people trying to do the right thing won't have the resource resources to avoid what's coming, and so. Uh, what part of what I want to do in this piece is, as, as we've discussed, is to start that conversation. Of how, how are we as Bitcoiners going to address the fact that as much as we try and, and work hard to spread the word, we're not going to completely succeed 100% because it's not enough at this point to spread the word. There's going to be a degree to which people who just don't have the money to save are not able to put enough money away in Bitcoin to, to, to save for that rainy day. And so what do we do for them? How do we help them through this transition? Uh, I don't have all the answers, but but I think it's something that we need to talk more about. Yeah. Education is important, but to your point, not everyone has the resources even to put that education into practice necessarily. Um, and the, the final element there in my mind is sometimes people really need to just feel the pain before they act, right? And it's just beginning with the inflation 
side of the equation. Uh, I saw recently in the Guardian, I think it was an op-ed that they were advocating for price controls. So like we're going down this same well-worn, crazy path, a self-destructive path ultimately. Um, and I think the other component there too is there's so much Bitcoin misinformation or disinformation for perhaps out there. I see it likely being blamed for everything that we know is being created by the legacy financial system. Like I could see climate, ch climate change is already sort of being blamed on Bitcoin. They're talking about its energy use. Probably when these inflations do set in, they'll probably scapegoat Bitcoin to some extent somehow. Um, so uh, yeah, it's very important to think about. I want to read one more excerpt here that I think you nicely tied together the action really for what the U.S. Treasury should do uh, under the circumstances. Uh, Before you do that, let me let me yeah. make one point about this this blame game uh, topic because we're already seeing it in a sense that you know you have Elizabeth Warren and others saying, well. The reason we're having inflation now is because greedy corporations want to right. increase their stock prices by raising prices on consumers. And it's like, um, hasn't the stock market existed for like 90 years? I mean, yeah. these companies have been on publicly listed companies for a long time. Why do they pick this moment to suddenly raise prices if, if greed and the stock market were the incentives? Greed and the stock market have been around a long time. Yeah. So... Uh, you're already hearing this kind of, well, it's the corporations uh, that are causing inflation, not uh, uh, fiscal and monetary irresponsibility. So it's not, it's a pretty short leap from that to, uh, to blaming Bitcoin. So go ahead. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point that the deeper we get into the consequences of fiat, the more deceptive, either self or otherwise. I don't, again, don't know if Elizabeth Warren, does she believe that or is she just bullshitting? It's hard to tell. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's wrong. It's incorrect, like completely incorrect. Um, all right, I'll read this excerpt here. You write third, the treasury department should consider replacing a fraction of its gold holdings, say 10% with Bitcoin. This move would pose little risk to the department's overall balance sheet, send a positive signal to the innovative blockchain sector and enable the United States to benefit from Bitcoin's growth. If the value of Bitcoin continues to appreciate strongly against gold and the U.S. dollar, such a move would help shore up the treasury and decrease the need for monetary inflation. It's like a triple win, right? I mean, your, your competitor dropped the ball. You can hedge yourself against your own monetary management and the monetary management of other nations. You can anticipate adoption of a potential disruptor to gold. Like you don't need to go all in on this thing, even if you think Bitcoin has a 1% chance of success and allocate 1% to Bitcoin. I just don't, it seems so obvious to me. And maybe it's just because I look at this subject matter for years on end, but how do we implant this obviousness into the minds of policymakers that can make it happen? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a great question. And um, I think it's going to take some time. You know, politicians are very loath to do things that are, that, they, that they're gonna get a lot of flack for, that they don't have confidence will work, mm. right? So if you really have confidence that it'll work, adding Bitcoin to the, the treasury, then you're gonna do it. You don't care that people are gonna snark and yell at you and whatever else, right? But if you're not so sure about Bitcoin, you know, you've just heard from some of your advisors, it's a good idea, but you yourself aren't so sure, 
you're not going to take that risk. So I think it's going to take a president or a tre- and or a treasury secretary who really believe in this idea or see that at the very least, like Ray Dalio does, that you have to have an allocation to Bitcoin. It's a responsible fiduciary thing to do. Um, and that moment isn't you know close at hand, I would say, but could it happen in a 10 to 20 year period? Absolutely. And it could happen sooner. I mean, it's, it's you know, like the, the presidential election of 2024 is, is not that far away. It's theoretically possible that uh, that the Republican that emerges uh, is is not Trump. It could be Trump, but if it's not Trump, because I don't think Trump would do this, but if it's not Trump, it could be somebody else who maybe has that kind of a view about, mm-hmm. about Bitcoin and it is forward thinking. That's possible. I'm not saying it's likely, but it's at least possible. Let's call it a 5% chance that that happens in 24. The chance, probability of that being true in a, in a future election is much higher. But over time, um, I think... You will start to see that uh, that line of thinking becoming at least more mainstream. Again, ideally, it happens as soon as possible because then the U.S. can uh, can gain the maximum advantage from Bitcoin. But um, you know, uh, I, I think that it should happen at some point. But that but that 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 resistance or reluctance to doing things that defy the conventional wisdom is a very very powerful aspect of how Washington works. You know, they, uh, as some of your listeners will know, you, you often hear people talk about this thing called the Overton window, which is named after uh, a think tank, uh, think tanker actually at, at, a, at a, a Michigan-based think tank called the Mackinac Center, who came up with this idea that there are these brackets or bounds of what's considered mainstream or respectable debate. And if you can shift as a think tank, if you can shift the bounds of respectable debate in your direction, say for example, by taking an idea like school choice and turning it from a radical idea that nobody agrees with to a mainstream idea that everyone talks about, then you have more of a chance of success because politicians really like to stay within the Overton window. Mm -hmm. And so part of the the social and political goal of Bitcoiners should be to to mainstream the Bitcoin within the Overton window. And, And doing so isn't merely about espousing Bitcoin's virtues. It's about addressing a lot of the topics that we've been addressing today in terms of how to address these reasonable and fair objections uh, to Bitcoin uh, that uh, that in order to overcome Washington skepticism, we've got to overcome. Yeah, well said. And so, I mean, clearly, I'm not going to hold you to this, but how do you see this playing out over the next 15, 20 years? I d- the hope, I mean, in my mind at least, is that the U.S. grabs the low-hanging fruit here and just makes the appropriate play. And I think there would be second and third order effects of putting Bitcoin on the U.S. balance sheet that would be positive, largely positive. Uh, I'm less sure about the probability of that, though. I was actually concerned originally that an authoritarian regime would move more quickly just because the decision-making is more centralized. Looks like that's not going to be China, which is sort of good news, but how do you see the geopolitical landscape in this within the scope of Bitcoin moving over the next decade or so? I think there's a there's a pretty broad range of scenarios as to what can happen, which is why it's so important now at this moment to be thinking about these questions and talking about these questions. If I if you had to um you know if you force me to put on a prognosticator hat and, and have a crystal ball and say, what do I think is the 
most likely scenario based on everything that we've talked about. I think the most likely scenario is that um, the U.S. seizes some of the opportunity, but not as much as it could. Mm. That the the slow footedness of the SEC and the Treasury Department and the U.S.'s resistance to giving up supremacy of the Treasury bond and the U.S. dollar is too hard of a mental framework to overcome for the government. And that while it's, it's all, but also at the same time, the, the government doesn't uh, aggressively shut down Bitcoin. And so Americans continue to be able to own it and Bitcoin related businesses continue to get, get off the ground and prosper. Um, and so that leaves a, a large opportunity for um the, the kinds of places that in the past have been the Singapore's and the Cayman Islands and the Bermudas, mm-hmm. the places where um, capital has moved and Switzerland actually back in the day, not so much anymore, uh, but where capital has moved and, and, and stayed in order to uh, go where it's treated best. And, and, and I can easily imagine as a base case scenario that what we start to see is just as we now live in a world where, partly for reasons of expansionary monetary policy, Tesla has a bigger market cap than the rest of the Detroit automakers combined. Um, one can imagine a situation where Bitcoin-related financial institutions have a larger market value than all the banks in the U.S. combined. That, uh, that is very easy to envision. Just as today, we have a world in which the largest biotechnology companies have a bigger market cap than the traditional legacy pharmaceutical companies that existed for much of the last century. So as you have these technological leaps, um, you have a a situation where you could imagine that, while for the last 100 plus years, 200 if 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 you wanna argue that, New York City has been the global financial capital of the world that in the future, the global financial capital of the world, maybe it's totally decentralized. There is no future global financial capital, or maybe it's San Salvador, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's you know, another one of these other countries that fully leans into Bitcoin and, uh, and people start moving there and locating their businesses there and living there and, and locating their capital. And maybe the whole idea of the physical location of capital becomes technologically obsolete, right? That is part of the vision of Bitcoin. But, but what I could imagine is a world in which um, people do like being a part of a physical and real world community. People do like being uh, interacting with each other in person. We've, we've all experienced this as Bitcoiners, people who you know, went to Miami and had that feeling of joy of being around other people who shared their crazy view of the world, right? Um, and, and I think that, that um, there is going to be an attraction and a demand for that. And Bitcoiners will want to be part of a community where the rest of the community shares their values, where the government shares their values, because that creates a certainty around your life and, 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 and your capital. And so to me, what I imagine, what I envision in the next 20 years is uh, as the base case scenario, and again, I hope this is not the case. I really hope this is not the case. And I spent a lot of my day job trying to fight uh, this outcome. But the base case scenario is that the U.S. has a steady decline at, at best like Japan's, at worst uh, like, uh, like Germany's in the 20s, and, uh, you know, the old 20s, the 20th century 20s. 
Um, but a, a decline in its ability to continue to run its economy because it's debt fuel and, and monetary expansion fueled. That leads to inflation, leads to a flight from the U.S., emigration from the U.S. To, to other parts of the world, particularly among those who have the capital to emigrate with. And that 20 years from now, we're looking at a world in which not China, not Europe, not the United States, but some other place has become the global financial capital. Mm. Wow. That's may have sounded outlandish 10 years ago, but at the pace things are moving um, and the direction things are moving, which is increasingly uncertain. Sounds like a good possibility. Uh, Ovik, I have to thank you, man. This piece you've written is excellent. I think it cuts through, again, a lot of big topics, not getting too deep into them to lose the readers, but hopefully enough to introduce them um, to things like the treasury bond market and Austrian economics um, and the strategy and the strategic implications of Bitcoin. Um, and also, yeah, just appreciate your, your cool-headed reasoning throughout this conversation. I think it's given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure my audience will enjoy it as well. Could you please let my audience know where they can find you if they want to learn more about you or your work? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Robert, for having me. It's uh, it's great to be on with you. It means a lot uh, what you what you say because uh, uh, the caliber of people you have on your your show is uh, is of the highest uh, quality, and I'm I'm a great admirer of, of all of them along with you. So, thank you for, for having you. me. Enjoyed the discussion a lot. Um, the best ways to follow my work are uh, I'm on Twitter a fair amount. My my Twitter handle is at a v i k. That's my first name, a v i k. Um, and you can also follow FreeOp, F-R-E-O-P-P, both on Twitter. That's the, the Twitter handle and at FreeOp.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org, and, and my work at Forbes as well. But uh, but Twitter is probably the first place to start because that's where I'll post pretty much everything I think about and, and links to those articles when they come up. Wonderful. All right, Ovik, thank you so much.